2: Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Descender, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Al Davidoff, the author of Unionizing the Ivory Tower, Cornell Workers' 15-Year Fight for Justice and a Living Wage. Unionizing the Ivory Tower chronicles how a thousand low-paid custodians, cooks, and gardeners succeeded in organizing a union, UAW Local, two three zero zero at Cornell University. Al Davidoff, a Cornell student leader who became a custodian and then the union's first president, tells the extraordinary story of these ordinary workers with passion, sensitivity, and wit. His memoir reveals how they took on the dominant power in the community, built a strong organization, and waged multiple strikes and campaigns for livable wages and their dignity. Their strategies and tactics were creative and feisty, founded on worker participation and ownership. The union's commitment to fairness, equity and economic justice also engaged these workers, mostly rural, white and conservative, at the intersections of racism, sexism, classism and homophobia. Davidoff's story demonstrates how a fighting union can activate today's working class to oppose anti-democratic and white supremacist forces. Al Davidoff is co-founder of the National Labor Leadership Initiative and the Director of Organizational and Leadership Development for U.S. Labor's global arm at the Solidarity Center. Al Davidoff, welcome to the New Books Network. Great. Thank
0: you for having me.
2: Uh, So thanks again for taking the time to talk today and for this really inspiring story that you tell in unionizing the ivory tower. Uh, What I like to start with uh, the events that you document in your book took place some time ago. And of course you've moved on from your work with local 2300. So I'd like to begin by asking you, what made you want to take up this project now?
0: Yeah, well, um, there's a number of reasons. One, um, Having had the incredible opportunity to start out my life in the labor movement with this experience and this struggle, even through hundreds of other struggles and, and decades of work in the labor movement, I, I've come to realize how um, privileged and extraordinary that fight was. And I've drawn on those lessons in in pretty much every other Uh, piece of work in the labor movement I've done. So a little bit of distance and perspective has made me appreciate it even more. Um, I I always felt that it was an incredible story and the people that I got to work with were amazing and it would be a vivid story to tell. Um, and I think there are two things going on right now that made me feel like it was a good time. Uh, one is the the increasing surge in organizing activity, especially among younger people, which is really uh, giving me a renewed sense of hope. Um, and part of this story is really about organizing for the long haul and, you know, going beyond winning that initial inspiring election to building an effective organization, which I think is a whole different set of challenges. And then the last, the last reason is, you know, the, the, the rise of the impression of the white working class is sort of this caricature of it being sort of irredeemable, um, that it's been captured, um, by the MAGA right. Um, and certainly there's a basis for those, those, um, um, perceptions. To me, this story, because of the, Basic demographics of who this group of workers was really tells a really different story. You know, why is it that workers that would have absent the union experience have been chanting "lock her up"? We're chanting "no contract, no peace," and it's because of what we went through. And I think it's a it's a good uh, tale to tell um, in the current moment um, when we're trying to figure out where what where is the political lay of the land for the working class in this country.
2: Yeah, as you said, it really is an extraordinary story that you tell uh, in this book. Um, I would say that I couldn't put it down. But in fact, I found myself putting it down often, um, at least for moments. So I sort of let the idea sort of roll around in my head for a little while, because there are just so many of them in there. Uh, but then I had to pick it up really fast again, right after that. <laughs> Um, so let's let's start uh, kind of at the start. Uh, how did you get involved in union work at Cornell University?
0: well, uh, i I had gradually evolved into being an activist. I think I had ideas about the world as a young person that were pretty unformed. Um, and then, uh, the opportunity to start to become an activist. This is a long time ago, as as you said, Tom. And and the earliest struggles for me were around the anti-apartheid movement, and um, and some labor issues and labor struggles, including the fact that the college I was in didn't really have as strong a labor presence as I expected it to have. So so I started. You know, becoming an activist around those kinds of things, I was also, you know, working like most students do to help pay uh, for my education, make ends meet. And and a group of workers, very fearful of even saying the word union, but concerned about conditions and things that were happening to them at the university, started to meet and get some attention and I initially was just volunteering to do whatever whatever was needed you know make some copies run some errands and the more I got involved the more significant I realized this was um the folks I was spending time with reminded me a lot of the kinds of people I grew up with, um, outside of Buffalo. And I just got caught up in it and I, uh, um, uh, increased my work hours and became a full-time custodian and just stayed with it from, from there on. Part of the organizing committee, um, got elected to the first bargaining committee, uh, and it was just cutting my teeth on every, every inch of that long drawn out process to try and build a union. And, and that's how I got started.
2: You tell a, a, a funny story about uh, participating in some of those early contract talks, um, and your presence there as a student having a certain effect on Cornell administrators.
0: Well, um, there before our union organized, there was a small group of operating engineers that organized, and while I was still a student, another pro labor friend got invited to be sit in on that. And then I I begged him to let me come and see if they'd let me sit in too. And I did, but apparently uh, the university had some idea of my reputation as a as a rebel rouser and immediately called a caucus and tried to have me thrown out of the bargaining, which was just horribly embarrassing and awkward. I was just trying to be a fly on the wall and learn. And the the, the fun thing was uh, the, the union committee took their own caucus without me in the room, and I came back in with my head hanging down, just wishing I'd never tried this in the first place. And, and they said, well, um, there, they, there's something about you that they don't like, and they seem a little afraid of you, so um, you can stay, but just don't say anything <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of messed with me and teased me at first. They said, oh, we had to give up a week's vacation for that, but they were just messing with me, and um, th- th- those were a, a really great group, and they went on strike, and um, that hadn't happened before at the university, I and mean, that was a precursor to our organizing efforts.
2: Yeah, and I should point out the, you know, I, I don't know how many of we'll, we'll get into in this in this talk, but for our listeners— the book is just filled with with anecdotes like that that um, that sort of bring so much of this process of unionizing uh, to life in in ways that um, again it, it's it's really just a a wonderful read. Um, so one of the things that interests me the most in this story concerns unionizing specifically in higher education. And, and recognizing that Cornell is is kind of a different kind of institution in a lot of ways. Um, what do you see as sort of some of the problems involved in in organizing in higher ed?
0: I mean the story in many ways um, was it is literally the story of us trying to understand power at a you know a complex institution. and we're starting from a place of being, you know by any, measure at the bottom of that hierarchy uh, at a very hierarchical institution. And so we, you know, the UAW was, was wonderful that provided help and resources, a tremendous, um, wonderful lead organizer who had just helped organize her university, Boston University clericals. So we had a lot of support, but we, I think we also realized that the UAW was much less familiar with our. World than they were, of course, with you know the auto companies and the aerospace, and and so things that that I think would have traditionally worked in a, a, a maybe in another industry didn't work. Uh, an, an example of that would be our first strike. So, you know, the university is like a city. There are forty entrances to campus. To picket all forty entrances, twenty-four hours a day, meant we were in tiny clusters that after a couple of days started to feel disempowering, not powerful. And yeah, maybe we turned away a few Teamster drivers and that felt good, but it was not figuring out what mattered on the university. And the same thing with our concepts of students, who we assumed must be really important to the university. And then when we were on strike and student services were being cut back, it was shocking to us how the university wasn't really that disturbed by that. Um, and then we assumed, well, it must be the faculty, and if only the faculty, you know. So we went through this whole process of, of trying to learn about power, and, you know, I, I'm sensitive to not trying to suggest that our lessons apply to every other situation, even in higher education. Every situation requires its own particular analysis, I think. But two things that w- we did learn that probably apply to, to many uh, universities, and they're not the only sources of power, but they were under-perceived um, under sources of power for us. One is, of course, image, reputation, um, and that ripples out into a number of different areas. Uh, I remember when we were able to get a faculty member who was a Nobel Prize winner to sign something that was different than a hundred other faculty signing the same letter, like beginning to learn the dynamics of reputational power. And the second, I would say, were the alums, um, I think we, which seems like an extremely hard group to organize, and, uh, and um, you don't have to organize a majority of them to have an influence. And we, we realized that Um, In many respects, and I don't want to sound too cynical about higher education as an industry, but um, the perception of the students was that their maximum value was as alums to the university. And so students having their lives disrupted by a strike was less important than students beginning to think about their relationship to the university as alums and potential um, donors in the future. So those are, are a couple things. And we began to conform our strategies to that. And then we also just learned how important building alliances with the community and how, you know, when you have a university that, or any institution that is so dominant in a community, if you you isolate yourself to only being perceived or only caring about your own most narrow terms and conditions of employment, you're really kind of missing the larger social relationship that that institution has with the community and we very quickly began to learn how our issues were community issues community issues were our issues and that became a, a powerful uh, kind of bridge over the years
2: i'm also thinking there were I, I i think it's in the description of of one of the strikes where um I don't know if it was was an alumni, but someone saying, someone saying to one of your uh, striking workers, uh, but look at where you get to work. It's so beautiful here. You know, money isn't everything. I, I,
0: you know, it's been an interesting process for me about memory, and I'm, there are, a lot of anecdotes. And some of these I had written down many years ago with the idea of of writing a book. So I, I had that to rely on. But these memories are very vivid for me, I think, because they were so formative in my life. But I remember exactly that moment. And I remember that I was also standing there handing out leaflets and near the person who experienced that. And this was a very wealthy I believe university trustee, maybe, you know, very you know high-level alum who was trying to be nice and, and was saying, you know, it's such a beautiful campus, money isn't everything. And what I loved about that is as that wealthy alum walked on to their banquet that we were protesting, the 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 worker, you know, really with a lot of guts, just turned toward her and shouted, money isn't everything. I'd like to find out someday, and yeah. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, that, that I, part of what one of the major threads to me in this whole story is about how the union leaders' job is to activate other leaders, and that there are a hundred or a thousand ways people can become active in the union, and that we can sometimes only offer one or two ways, like you're going to be a shop steward, and you're going to butt heads with your boss. And there were so many ways and to see people who were terrified to even say the word union, have the courage to mouth off back to that wealthy alum. I mean, that happened 1000s of times. And and it speaks to the, you know, the, the true uh, power and I and, and ultimate identity of, of workers if they you know, can find their voice and their opportunity.
2: Yeah, and again, that that's another uh, just a fascinating piece of of this whole story is the way that, you know, again, it, I, I don't even like the phrase ordinary people, but but folks who yeah. who are not given to this kind of work finding their niche. I'm I'm thinking of the of the woman who started managing the the food pantry that you that you developed, right? Yeah. And, and and here's someone who is, you know, not what we would think of as a leader, but but she had this skill, she had this ability, and, and she steps in and she does this amazing work. Yeah.
0: My, one of, in some ways, because it's so small, but it ended up being so consequential. One of my favorite stories is a, a custodian, a guy named George Wegman, who uh, was a custodian in um, the art museum. And uh, he was nearing retirement just as things were heating up. Um, Quiet guy, never active. I don't even think he he came to membership meetings, but, uh, you know, a yes, vote guy maybe would wear a button, that kind of thing. And somebody at one point said, oh, you know, George is a great artist. And, you know, he draws these hilarious cartoons. And I said, well, why don't we get George to do one of those superhero cartoons he does for just our, posting our meetings and make them a little more colorful and creative and george loved that and for probably six months he did that you know every couple weeks for us he never that was his contribution and then as we were nearing a strike and people were terrified and people were being threatened that they'd lose their pension or they wouldn't get rehired and this guy was within weeks of retirement and people wanted to say, "Hey, give him a pass. You know, he doesn't need to go out. Why, why risk it, George?" But he did go out, and um, and I am positive that that experience of him doing that function, being connected to the union because he contributed his artwork every week, was the the difference between him going out and not going out. And then what it meant was to everybody at that time clock and to hundreds of other folks. He was a hero because he was a guy who was within weeks of collecting a hard-earned and very small pension, and and it turned out to be his birthday when we were on strike. So this became a whole story, and 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 to me, if if you're a leader, and there are a lot of things that get in the way and that pull you in other directions, but if you at least have a small light on in the back of your head that says I'm always looking for how somebody can get plugged in and involved. I, I just, that to me, that's one of the most important lessons of of leadership and and George, the George Wagner story, I have, because it was such a small thing that turned into such a big definitional moment of solidarity. I always think of that. <sighs>
2: It, it, and again, you there. There are a number of other stories, like the one you just told about George Wegman, throughout sort of throughout the book uh, of people who stepped up in in really um, just phenomenal ways, showing showing incredible courage, um, but also creativity and ability um, in in putting the union together. Um, I want to ask. I've wrote my dissertation on uh, graduate employee unionization. <laughs> Um, After I finished my dissertation, you know, the the UAW represented um, uh, teaching assistants at uh, the University of California system as I was writing. And so uh, I showed my dissertation to my grandfather, who was a UAW local president himself. Oh, wow. And um, so he's reading through it, and he he finds, you know, the references to the UAW. And he he looks at me and he says— who talks to these people at Solidarity House, right? Like who? Who at Solidarity House is talking to these academics, uh, uh, and 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 so I want to talk a little bit about that. Your affiliation with the UAW. Yeah. What did you decide to go with, uh, and again, you know, it's just uh, these are choices uh, with the UAW to in, in that experience.
0: Yeah, that was a, a fascinating experience. So the sort of rump employee organization that had begun to form was called ace active concerned employees it again it started out without people even using the word union it never grew too far it hit its kind of natural limits um and that at that point people were becoming more convinced that they needed to explore Um, inviting a union or affiliating with a union for the organizing drive. And we interviewed four or five different unions. And um, the UAW um, was chosen for a number of reasons. Um, There were some shortcomings of the other candidates that became apparent, but the strengths of the UAW were at that point it was emerging into a lot of other organizing on different campuses. So Boston university had just succeeded. Columbia had just succeeded um, or were in the process. Um, The um, we, we wanted a union that allowed for a certain level of local autonomy. And our sense was that, you know, we would have that. Um, And, because of a quirk of fate, um, an incredible guy named Brendan Sexton, who had been the UAW's education director, had he was a retiree at this point, was teaching at Cornell, and he was a wonderful guy. and he, And he and I became very close. He became very close to the Norma Ray of this campaign, Kathy Valentino, and so there was a, a sort of inside sense of trust. And Brendan was well enough connected that when it came time to have the UAW come make a presentation to our little group in Kathy's living room, they brought some really significant people in. And we knew this, you know, we lived in this community. We knew Cornell dominated our lives in every aspect. And that if you were just here to try for a few weeks or months that we'd end up getting crushed and we needed a serious commitment. And the UAW made that commitment and the level of leadership they brought in demonstrated that commitment. The organizer out of Boston, one of the three women I dedicate the book to Barbara Rocky was brilliant. And we immediately, you know, felt we would be in good hands with her and, um, you know, I tell some stories in the book where relations with the UAW rep in the area really went south and was really a problem, so I don't sugarcoat it, but um, there were really good reasons uh, that we we went with the UAW at the time.
2: Yeah, and I was going to ask about some of that, some of the problems that arose from that relationship in, in sort of the UAW, not really grasping uh, some of the the nuances involved in in organizing in higher ed?
0: Yeah, I I think there were two sort of stages of that. One was, you know, to to be fair, their own awakening. You know, if you're dealing with General Motors and at this point, the UAW was, you know, 1.5 million members. It was, you know, had a lot of swagger. um, And, um, you know, uh, the idea that this college in the middle of nowhere would be difficult to bring to a contract just didn't make sense. Um, And so they were surprised um, and and they were surprised when certain things didn't work. And they were in a sense learning along with us. And I mean, I think the UAW over the years, there's been a lot more grad students and others that have organized. So there's a lot more expertise and familiarity. I mean, in the second experience, Experience was with one particular guy who again I don't um, hide my frustration or you know disdain for who was a uh, who actually had opposed the UAW um, coming in and helping us organize and we knew that so that wasn't a great <laughs> basis for a relationship and he just um, had what, what, you know, are, I think, generally called these business unionist tendencies. He, he just, he didn't believe in building a strong local. He, you know, at that point, Reagan was president. And, of course, Reagan was a huge problem for the labor movement. But this guy would make, that was his excuse for everything. Until we get rid of Reagan, you better not do this. You better not do that. And he really, he had just a fundamentally different attitude um, about, um about what it meant to be a union and to build a union. And, um, you know, we really butted heads for a while. Eventually, they swapped him out for a guy that was fantastic and was completely in sync with, you know, building a democratic, feisty, um, member-inclusive, militant union.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So maybe this is a good place to, to ask this next question. It was it's sort of in, in out of order for me, but um, one of the things that, again, I really admire about this book and, uh, and about the story that you tell is, you know, I, I do a fair amount of reading on, on you know, labor history and, and labor analysis. And there's always this sort of the, the narratives are almost are pretty predictable, right? It's like everything is going around, along more or less swimmingly. And mm-hmm. then the Patco strike and then yeah. everything goes to hell. And, right. and and one of the things that I I so admired about about local twenty three hundred is that it's all taking place, I mean, for the most part, after the PATCO strike. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to to do this kind of work when it really feels like as as you know, the story you just told, where the cultural currents really seem to be going in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting question, and, and not one not one I've thought as clearly about as I would like for purposes of answering it. <laughs> and, and my first reaction is, we were so focused on our universe. Of course, we, we were aware. I mean, we went, we got on buses to go to what was called Solidarity Day. Um, which was amazing. I was like four or five hundred thousand union members marching um in solidarity with PACO and other unions and, and trying to demonstrate labor power. So we were connected to that. We went to lots of you know UAW conventions and meetings, and we we were aware of the larger picture, but we were so embroiled in trying to survive and grow on our own. Um and you know inside of an industrial union during a period of prolonged industrial decline you know we we were aware that while our struggles were you know obviously the most important thing to us that there was a context of tragedy and solidarity with other locals that were you know having their plants close and and such um but um we i mean i, I we never We never felt like that the actual limitations on our ability to build a powerful union were because of those events. I mean, it created a climate that maybe emboldened some employers, but at the end of the day, if you can figure out your own particular power relationships effectively, it shouldn't you can't ignore the larger context, but it also should not be an excuse to not build the right kind of organization. And one one last point on this, and this comes probably is much or more from experiences over the decades. Um, in in my experience, how you fight is as important as what the outcome is, and probably more important. I've I've been in the role as a rep where I bargained a contract where you could say the objective. Outcome was okay, not bad, but for reasons that, you know, I was too busy, I was spread too thin, we didn't build the kind of activist culture, and and workers were ended up frustrated and didn't feel a sense of ownership of the union, and even if the contract was pretty good, the union had become weaker, and I've had the opposite experience many times, where because of external conditions of the industry, the circumstances, you're not going to make some amazing economic breakthrough, but because people were fully involved and engaged, they understood that and the union got stronger through that experience. And so I don't, I don't like to rely on macro it, sort of excuses for micro failures um, in, in, a, in a sense. I'm not trying to be naive about the larger political context we all function in, but that did not dictate our ability to build
2: an effective union. Yeah, and again, it, it's a it's a story that you tell beautifully in, in, in the book. Um so let's talk a little bit about um what it was like to to win that initial recognition. The 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 vote to certify the union.
0: Yeah. I mean I it's the truth. I, other than the birth dates of my kids, it's the only other date that I will never forget. Um and um, February twenty fourth. And um Yeah, we didn't know it was gonna happen. Um, It's a, as described, a huge campus. People are in 200 buildings. We've been organizing for well over a year. You know, this is pre-internet, so everything is, you know, granular home visits, clock conversations, you know, covert side conversations in the workplace. We're obviously mapping and tracking as best we can, but we knew it was gonna be close. And um, I think there were close to a hundred, which is a tribute to the way we organized. We had a huge organizing committee and close to a hundred workers stayed into the late afternoon evening beyond their shifts to listen to the vote count. And so it was just one of the most joyous moments I can ever recall people were, People had risked so much and they knew that if we lost, things would not be, would not get better, and that as individuals who had stuck their necks out, the most active people would probably suffer um, some repercussions. So there was a huge um, eruption of emotion and excitement. And and lastly, again, this is not just any employer. This was, this was like a company town. And for the people at the bottom rungs, the people most invisible, the food service workers and custodians to rise up and win like that was so unprecedented. Um, it, it, it I, I use this word sparingly, but it had a kind of revolutionary feeling to it. Something huge had happened that evening.
1: Yeah.
2: And again, um, so let's. Talk about then you know obviously there's a lot of joy um, uh, built up in that moment where where you where you win the, that vote uh, and then you gotta negotiate a contract,
0: yeah, yeah, and I think it's the case for most folks who go through these kinds of struggles um, uh, you know you 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 go from this sort of existential binary debate is it yes for the union no to this much more you know, technocratic, legalistic process. Again, one of the lessons I think we learned over those 15 years was how do you not get overly sucked in to being complicit in making it an overly legalistic, <laughs> technocratic process? You know, most employers and, and unions will negotiate ground rules. And it always amazed me how ground rules, the employer's ground rules are almost always about disempowering the union. Oh, it's got to be confidential or you know, no no, press, or whatever. And they can sound reasonable. And maybe if you have a really good, mature relationship with your employer, some of those make sense. But the employer understands power and, and their ground rules are usually about, you know, making this this private technical matter. And so, you know, it took us a while to, to uh, kind of challenge some of those those assumptions because, you know, bargaining can grind you down. And, and, you know, even something as basic as having some of your best leaders, no longer organizers, but sitting for days at a time in some hotel room somewhere, not actually acting like leaders and talking to coworkers was, was uh, weakening. Um, and, you know, Organizing is it unleashes people's hopes and aspirations, totally deserved hopes and aspirations, but actually winning at that level is not easy, and and so bargaining is is granular and incremental progress. And uh, to me, the key lesson is to come back to maximum inclusion. I, I always at the end of every contract when we were having the big vote. Um, there you know there would always be some members that were like pissed and dissatisfied well we should have gotten more and wondered, you know sometimes those people were just sort of you know blowing off steam but often you could see the 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 potential leadership in some of those dissident voices and i always i started to think what's the difference between that person's feelings about this and my most militant colleague on the bargaining committee who's now recommending this contract. It's that they went through a process. And then so to me, the challenge became, how can we put as many people as possible in the seat of involvement and, and power? Um, and, um, and and so to me, the antidote to the limitations of bargaining is maximum participation and using the process to strengthen the, the health of the union for the long run and and that became, it's almost a shift in your priorities about things. Um, And and again, you see in the book, you have to deal with a lot of employer pushback. What do you mean you're expanding your bargaining committee? What do you mean you're inviting, you know, students and faculty and city council members to sit in a ring behind the bargaining committee? You know, you get essentially threatened that this is going to backfire. Um, and it takes a lot of resilience to, um, and, and, and dialogue within the ranks of the members to make these decisions that add to your power as opposed to getting sucked into a traditional notion that you know, bargaining is this technical private matter between a small number of people.
2: And, and you you had some folks at the UAW who wanted to treat it like that that you know, kind of tried to take over and just kind of push papers back and forth with the university administration. And one of the one of the issues that we've were we have confronted over the years is, you know for for years negotiating here, we would we would have a faculty member represent the faculty and and then the administration would be represented by an administrator. And then at some point they switched to a lawyer and representing the administration. And so the, the, the impetus then was like, okay, well, we need to get a lawyer to counter it. And, um, and the lawyer that we, that we represents us told us basically what happens at the table is more a matter of what happens outside of the room. Yeah. The power comes from outside the room. The the negotiating team is just sort of the lever that moves things. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And um, it's very easy, for, especially for workers who feel uh, a low self-confidence in a formal setting like that, um, to then feel like you need to rely on your lawyer or your polished rep. And... Um, you know and, 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 and if there are definitely roles for polished reps and lawyers um but in in my experience um the the small degree of risk involved in having a much more inclusive participative process at bargaining which i came to realize if someone misspoke, you can always sort of clean it up. You're not, you know, this idea that, oh, my God, somebody said the wrong thing. And now, you know, some It's really not true 99 percent of the time. And and the the consequences of a very closed sort of a process that actually alienates your own leaders and members. And and I I, I tell the story in the book and, you know, I have the advantages and the privilege of having some a higher level of formal education. So you'd think, well, you know, I wouldn't maybe have been as intimidated. It was totally intimidating. And and because we didn't speak in that first bargaining for a long time, it was all done through our rep. By the time the rep finally said, you know, maybe you guys should say something. I remember how we were all so nervous about saying anything and so awkward. To every bargaining I did since then, the very first session, I, I make sure every member speaks. They're talking about who they are, why they're at the table, what are what what are issues that they care about from their own specific workplace, and what are issues that they care about that link them to the larger group, um, and get it off your chest and get comfortable, and that's what being a leader is. You shouldn't be sitting there quietly waiting for your professional negotiator to get you something.
2: So... There are a lot of issues that that get raised in this story. Um, And I'd like you to read uh, right now, if you could, from your book. And I'm specifically thinking of the the first full paragraph on page 236. Okay.
0: Uh, First, ignorance may be a mile wide, but it is only an inch deep for most workers. It is shallow because that ignorance is at odds with self-interest and basic humanity. Our union engaged a 1,000 workers. Nonstop education came in the form of newsletters, radio, and by far most important, conversations with increasingly developed activist peers. Self-interest was agitated and common interest revealed. The union enters the consciousness at narrow but profound points. Merit pay is unfair. Poverty wages are hurting my family. I'd like to have a pension I can retire on. My back is sore from no limits on lifting and my lungs are bad from all those toxic chemicals. But like a wedge, those narrow points of self-interest open the mind. My problems are the same as others. Our common denominator is we are workers and powerless as individuals. It doesn't have to be that way. Let's get together, learn to fight and have fun doing it. Embedded inside each of these awakenings was the reality that in every area of economic hardship, women and blacks had it even worse. The union consciously played a role in exploring and exposing that reality. We did it because it was an important part of the unfairness that needed to be confronted. And because while at times controversial, it made us stronger.
2: So let's talk about a couple of really clear examples of of what you're talking about in that paragraph. Um, Tell us the stories about Frankie McCoy and Roy Lee. Yeah,
0: well, um, let me, so Frankie was a custodian for quite a few years. He um, had migrated from Alabama where he had uh, worked in the woodworking industry and unbeknownst to us and uh, he had developed a, a a a nasal and lung condition and so he had he had some serious um absenteeism problems all based on legitimate health issues um he was a very you
2: know
0: known to be a very good worker etc but he had he had uh, problems because of his his illness i mean it you know Looking, advancing forward, we would say he had a disability that needed to be accommodated and wasn't. And so they ran him up the disciplinary ladder and fired him. Um, Frankie uh, was a, you know, a, a black worker. This bargaining unit was probably 85, 90% white. Um, and we had never taken a case to arbitration. This was early on in the union's existence.
2: You're really Um, testing the grievance process here.
0: Very much testing the grievance process. And um, on certain measures in terms of his missing work and management kind of fairly carefully going through the progressive steps, they had a pretty good case. Um, And yet all of those absences were based on legitimate illness and so um, we had a difficult internal debate within the union about whether this case should go forward or not. And without going into all the details of all the different elements, th- this, this guy worked. So this, he worked in a department where there were 250 other custodians in a hundred different buildings. And they had Frankie working, cleaning a building in the engineering quad that existed in, where he cleaned uh, to, I don't know if I can explain the science of it, basically smashing and testing that, I think it's called the tensity of different materials. So he was literally, this guy with a se- severe nasal and lung condition was probably cleaning the single worst, dustiest place on campus. So they had done nothing to accommodate him. Um, and we took the case. It generated some of the internal racism. Um, that had to be debated, um, and um, and we were very fearful that we didn't want to lose the first case and have people lose faith in the grievance procedure in the union. But um, it was an important debate. We won the case, got full back pay. Um, And, um, you know, Frankie, Frankie came to every membership meeting for the rest of his life. Uh, Really, really good guy, guy with a big family who desperately needed that job. And um, and so that was a, a proud moment. And then briefly, amazingly enough, I mean, the. The university runs its own bus system. It's a substantial system. It is is—it is like a, its own city bus system. It also ran, ran run charters all over the country for athletic events, et cetera. So it's a pretty big workplace. There had never been a black bus driver, even though there were maybe, uh, I'm trying to think now, maybe 30 to 35 bus drivers. And, and we, it was not a union stronghold for us. The guy who ran the place, was, ran it with an iron fist, and he basically put his friends and family into these uh, jobs that were, you know, in the middle of our hierarchy, so seen as a maybe, a, you know, more respected roles, more money, um, and he controlled access to the circumstances because you have to have a, a CDL and experience driving a bus. He would give friends and family opportunities on Cornell buses to practice and learn, um, and um, and so it was a, it was a source of frustration for workers, white and black, that it was very difficult to ever move up from custodian or food service worker to become a bus driver. And then um, uh, and we knew that guy who ran the place also had made some racist comments, and so this this was to us, it was just remarkable. And we had had another uh, African-American worker apply there, but they didn't have a CDL and they, you know, just got cast aside. Roy, uh, Roy Lee uh, uh, came, called me one day and said, I've applied at the bus garage. I want to be a bus driver. And, you know, my heart sank for a minute because I thought, oh, are we going to have another one of these where this boss is going to hide behind the credential issue um, and i said something to roy they said well great roy let's talk about it you know you need a, a cdl he goes i got a cdl i've been driving for my church for like a decade and i was like the lights went on and i said we finally have our case they still didn't hire him uh, and we fought it and we made it a community issue we talked to the, the um, black churches in town we talked to the university's uh, africana studies center leadership uh, reconnected with some of the folks who've been active in the anti-apartheid movement, and uh, and they eventually brought Roy on as a bus driver. It was the f- first uh, black driver, and you know, for our members, um, it, both of those struggles were really helped a majority white rural conservative group recognize that the whole system was unfair and corrupt. And that certain people, because of the color of their skin or their gender or other things, were were even a step lower than they were on that ladder to try and move up. It was it was it, those were important early fights in terms of the culture of the union.
2: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the culture of the union. Um, one of the things that that you were really after with with Local twenty three hundred is not just to be a representative for the workers, but to really be an instrument of social change in the community. So how did you keep Local 2300 mobilizing the community beyond just serving member needs?
0: You know, my, again, I don't present this as the way to do anything. It's what we experienced. And I, I think there's some good good lessons in there, but um, I tried to write the book in a way that wasn't, you know, pedantic, like, here's what you should do. What What I learned from it is, that there's this sequence of of, um, expanding activity and and kind of then consciousness. So people began by supporting other unions and other struggles, understanding even just on campus. We built a network of the three or four other unions on campus to support one another. And then we rebuilt the labor council that had gone dormant. And and so workers began to see. Oh yeah, the fights we're having here. There's a fight over, you know, with the Ithaca Teachers Association. The para professionals were also fighting a living wage fight. I, I don't write about that in the book, but that was a bridge where people saw. Oh, this is more than just our terms and conditions. And then you know you you get you go beyond that to seeing other things that that connect. Um, why is it that the political infrastructure of the community is afraid to confront the university or who is willing to stand by us. And what is the relationship between the community? Half the land in the county is tax exempt because of the university. And it's not enough to say, hey, we put you on the map. That's true, but it also means the other half has to pay all the taxes. And so we became very engaged you know, the university came to us and said, why are you supporting, you know, resources for the community? That could go to your wages. And it's like, how ironic is that? Like, we were just at bargaining, you didn't seem to have any extra money then. Um, and we didn't, we didn't buy that argument. And you know, our members lived in the community. And you, we looked at, we realized we need to look at ourselves as not just people that work from 7am to three, but as people that then go back and live in trailer parks that don't have good sewage systems or um, have to live 20 miles away from campus because there's no affordable housing nearby. And and so there were just, to me, there were just these logical steps. Um, it didn't hurt that the one newspaper in town was as aggressively anti-union as the university had been, in some ways more nakedly. They ran, literally ran an editorial a few days before the vote titled Vote No. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and, and so if you are an activist who spent the last year and a half of your life talking to other workers about why the union is a good thing, and it's your union, and you own it, and you read garbage in the local paper, that your whole life has been the one source of quote-unquote information, now all of a sudden you think, wow, maybe what they're saying about workers in other cities or countries or politics is, is also skewed by some politics and some corporate ideology. So these things all conspired to open people's minds, including the issues around race and gender and other people's struggles. And to me, I, I, you. I, but it was also because we had learned to fight our fights at the beginning. And I, I don't think you can build a progressive union from a weak union. You may be able to get a leader who's progressive who will sign their name to a letter, you know, endorsing something, but you can't really join in a broader progressive movement if people don't think the union itself is meaningful in their lives. Um so yeah um it, it, it was step by step and um you know people ended up supporting things that if they hadn't been in these fights would have been completely unacceptable to their worldview five years previous, you know, gay rights this is a long time ago, basic non-discrimination, you know, that you, you know, not letting landlords refuse an apartment to someone because they're gay. Majority of, of, of my executive board, I, I spent years with them, you know, harbored homophobia. But what they didn't like was that a powerful entity like the landlord community could play favorites and they overcame their personal homophobia to say that's not right. And our organization should stand with the gay community. Uh, And so, but it was built on those foundations.
2: So as we wrap up today, uh, I'll return to the book. And uh, I want to ask you to read from page 229, uh, beginning with the phrase, did I enjoy the fight?
0: Did I enjoy the fight? Most of the time. I knew it was educating and even radicalizing hundreds of workers. So the fight was important for many reasons. But the truth is the fight was always about respect, dignity, and livable wages and benefits. Give us that and the relationship would mature. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what that would feel like or where I would fit in with a, quote, mature relationship. I wasn't sure how you build and sustain a good union without these kinds of struggles but we had been fighting for a decade and many, many workers were still on the edge. Ending the poverty was always the priority. Embarrassing and threatening the university was a means to an end. And to be honest, some members were tired of perpetual struggle. I was very open to learning what a truly successful contract settlement felt like. Um, and um, if if you would permit me, there's a, if I can find it really quickly, um, Maybe I can't, Um, there's a, there's a phrase that I feel needs to go with that. Here it is. It's at the end of uh, the epilogue. If you permit me to read a sentence or two more. Workers not only want to receive respect and be treated with dignity. Those are important, but passive words. Those are outcomes of a well-fought struggle. Workers can also enjoy and be transformed by the fight itself—the solidarity, the mischief, the righteous power of standing alongside one thousand Davids, pulling that slingshot back together and letting a thousand pebbles fly.
2: I'm glad you found that. Thanks. Um, So, again. I can't speak highly enough of, about your book. I think it's, I think it's terrific. Um, so most of the guests on my podcast are academics. And so I typically will ask them what they're working on next. Uh, <laughs> and if you do have another project, you can certainly talk about it, but uh, I would also like you, if you could talk a little bit about your work with the solidarity center.
0: Um, well, thanks. I'm, I am not working on another book. But, um, uh, uh, I, uh, so my, my, I've been at the Solidarity Center for about almost six years now. I've spent the whole rest of my life in the U.S. labor movement, um, and, um, about half of that career sort of in the trenches around bargaining and organizing and, and, uh, about half in, um, you know, what, what I think of as sort of helping try to lead organizational change in unions in different ways, um, Solidarity Center, um, uh, works almost exclusively in the global south. Um, one of the things I do there that I love is uh, help uh, initiate a global labor leadership program um, where we get leaders together to really think about the challenges, to have these kinds of discussions about what does it mean to build a union, uh, build coalitions, uh, learning from each other. Um, I... I Uh, help found a a program like that in the U.S. And I have to say doing it globally is mind-blowingly powerful. People who, you know, people risk a lot in the U.S. to become activists and leaders. But if you're doing it in, you know, Africa, Asia, Latin America, you often are, you know, risking your life, risking uh, all sorts of threats to you and your family. And so the level of courage... And camaraderie and good humor of working with leaders from from those places has been an incredible privilege for me. Um, And um, so that that's an example of one of the things that I'm working on.
2: Well, again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Uh, It's just been an absolute delight to uh, to discuss this book with you.
0: Thank you, Tom, and good luck with your your uh, situation and your bargaining. And thanks for great questions and and uh, for using the book. It really means a lot to me. Appreciate it, brother.
2: Uh, so once again, my guest today has been Al Davidoff, the author of Unionizing the Ivory Tower, Cornell Workers' 15-Year Fight for Justice and a Living Wage, from ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.